Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Seinfeld mocked it. Letterman ranked it in his top 10 list. And for more than 15 years later, it, its infamy continues. Everyone knows the McDonald's coffee case. It has been routinely cited as an example of how citizens have taken advantage of America's legal system. But is that the fair rendition of the facts? The documentary Hot Coffee reveals what really happened to Stella Liebeck, the Albuquerque woman who spilled coffee on herself and sued McDonald's. While exploring how and why this case has garnered so much media attention, who funded the effort and to what end? After seeing this film, you will decide who really profited from spilling hot coffee. We're joined by the director, producer of Hot Coffee, Susan Saladoff. She has spent the last 25 years practicing law in a civil justice system representing injured individuals and corporate negligence. She stopped doing that in, in 2009 to make this documentary, Hot Coffee. Susan Saladoff, welcome to Film School. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. And I I just loved your film. I really, truly did. I thought that you did a fantastic job of pulling in to us, the viewer, something we think we know about, and then proceed to deconstruct all of what we think we knew and why it's so important that we know more about what really happened to Stella Liebeck and hundreds, thousands of other people across this country. Tell me a little bit about how you came to know Stella's case and what prompted you to uh, make a documentary about it. Well, because I practiced law for so many years, uh, every person who practices law who tries cases, particularly in the injury field, you know, this case is sort of the, 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 the one that comes up in every jury trial. I mean, it's, it, it, they say it's the most infamous case in the world. You know, everybody around the world knows this case. Yeah. And, but what most people think is that, oh, how ridiculous it is that this woman spilled coffee on herself and won millions of dollars. And because people think that, they have a distorted view of the civil justice system, and they think that people are out there to take advantage of them um, and that the system is broken. And so I knew that, and I knew that, that that was not my experience and not most people's experience who actually have something that bad happens to them and want to get justice in our court system. And so I actually didn't start out thinking I was going to use that case as the poster child for the, or as the beginning of the movie, but, but when I realized that that's the case that everybody knows, I thought, well, what a great bringing off point, you know, yeah. a jumping off point for the, for the bigger stories. Um, because when people see the film, and I, I, I'm assuming this happened with you, and particularly the photographs, all of a sudden all the perceptions that you have change. And, you know, you go, oh, my goodness, why, why did I think that? Why, why was I? I feel duped at this point. Yeah. And then people think, okay, well, what else do I not know? And then the rest of the stories, because there are four stories in the movie, right. and then people are more open-minded to, to the rest of the stories in the movie. And I guess the number one, number one response that people say after watching is this is eye-opening. You know, I'm an educated person. I read the newspaper. I, I thought I you know, knew this stuff, and I didn't get it at all. Well, throughout the movie, and I think it's a great 
cinematic device is to the man on the street interviews and you you come you go back to the, the many of the same people throughout the film and ask them well what do you know about this case and personally i don't know any i have yet to talk to anyone who doesn't think they know this case that is an amazing accomplishment in a world filled with information about everything where it gets lost blurred and everything else people think they know this case but i like the fact that in the film you've got you've talked to these what is arbitration what is caps what are and these and and people don't know educated apparently educated people do not know um so walk us through just some of the basic facts of stella's case and and just so we kind of are on the same footing here sure so she was 79 years old uh, she had never brought a lawsuit a day in her life. She was actually, you know, a pretty conservative person. Uh, she was a passenger in a parked car. Her grandson was driving the car, and they wanted to get uh, breakfast at McDonald's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so her grandson pulled into the into the drive-through, ordered uh, two McBreakfast McBreakfast sandwiches or whatever they're called, <laughs> and ordered her a, a cup of coffee. Now you have to remember this was in 1992, so it's not like the coffee cups we have today. This was the old-fashioned white styrofoam cup with the little plastic top that you could never get that little triangular thing off when you tried to open it. And so she asked for cream and sugar. They put the cream and sugar in the bag, not in the coffee itself. Her grandson drove into a parking spot, parked the car, and when she tried to get the top off the little thing, she couldn't do it, so she steadied. And the car, by the way, didn't have any cup holders or flat surfaces the way our cars do now. And so she steadied the cup between her legs, like it, uh, on the seat, like, you know, and held it with her knees. Right. And then when she tried to open the cup, she couldn't get it, so she literally she took the, the, the top off, and the cup literally collapsed because the coffee was so hot that it, 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 it just collapsed the cup. And so the coffee, which was between 180 and 190 degrees, uh, pooled in her crotch and caused her third-degree burns, which are the worst kinds of burns that you can have, within three to seven seconds of contact. She suffered, um, she needed to have skin grafting and surgery. She was in the hospital for eight days, and all she asked for from McDonald's was the difference between what her medical bills were and what Medicare paid, which was like at the time about $10,000. And McDonald's offered her $800, never offered her another penny. And when she went to trial, it was a unanimous verdict. Twelve people um, uh, ruled in her favor and gave her essentially her medical bills and the the pain and suffering. But then the big verdict, which was $2.7 million, was for... um, two days of coffee sales for McDonald's, and that was a punishment. They call it punitive damages because they they heard the quality assurance representative from McDonald's testify that they knew they were selling coffee through the drive-thru that would burn people on contact. Yeah. And the jury just got really angry. And they also testified that they had had over seven, they had paid out over 700 times for other people who had been burned by coffee. Again, I... Uh, oh, can I, I'm sorry, can I add one thing? Because yeah, it's really please. important. Yeah. Is that the judge then reduced the verdict. So she didn't wind up getting all that money. So people think, oh, she won millions of dollars. The judge reduced the verdict to $480,000, and then they wound up settling the amount for an even lesser amount. But she was subject to a gag order. So she couldn't say any of these things. And McDonald's wasn't. And so that's why the, the media was able to pull all this <clears throat> uh, uh, misinformation out to the world. And then it was like whispered down the lane after that. 
Yeah, it, 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 that. thank you. That is a beautiful encapsulation of what happened. I think it's important for me personally to underscore that it, it, through, we don't have the benefit of showing you via radio, but when you see the pictures of the damage done to this woman, third-degree burns is a mild description of what happened to her. Uh, in I think in our, it, it, it doesn't do justice, let's, let's put it that way. And it... Keep in mind, as you said, contact with 180 to 190 degree water takes two to seven seconds. It's said in the film, two to seven seconds to cause third degree burns. Now, if you've ever spilled anything on yourself, how long? It takes you a couple of seconds to realize it's what's happened, and a few more seconds to get it off of you, whatever it might be. So she was burned without really any opportunity to stop this from happening. Right, and it was also pooled in her, it was a, a bucket yeah. seat, yeah. and she was wearing cotton underwear and nylons uh. and a sweatsuit, because it was February in Albuquerque, uh. and so that just like sucked in, like just stayed right there, and she tried to get out of it, but just couldn't get out of it in time. Yeah, it, and when you show the pictures to the people, the man on the street part of this, every you, the, the shock, is it is shocking to see what happened to her, so... Uh, and they knew. McDonald's knew full well that this was causing these kinds of injuries. So, all right. So we, we've kind of established the facts of the case, Counselor. Let's move on <laughs> to what happened in terms of sort of the uh, pooling of resources of, of corporate America and making this the poster child. Let's go through a little bit of that, that, that uh, story. Right. I'm sorry. I guess I'm getting a call waiting, so you're just going to have to ignore that. Oh, um, but... Um, so what happened was is that um, at the time that this happened, let's put this into context, yeah. um, President Clinton was in office, but um, in, the verdict was in August of 1994, and uh, in the fall of 1994, Congress uh, uh, shifted to, Congress went Republican, right. and Newt Gingrich became the first speak, Republican Speaker of the House in 40 years, right. and they were trying to get passed in Congress well, his contract with America, and his contract with America had in it so-called legal reform or tort reform. And, and as you know from the film, almost nobody knows what a tort is, let alone know what tort reform is. And yet people are hearing these terms over and over again. They hear them in the media. They hear them, you know, in every political discussion. And most people don't have a clue what, what, we're, what we're talking about. Right. But, they, but they tend to have very strong opinions nonetheless. Well, they, don't, all, they know tort reform good. Tort right. bad. I mean, there's sort of a very simple-minded kind of reaction to this stuff. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And what's so crazy about that is that tort reform, which is basically a limitation on people's ability to access our court system when something happens to them from negligence, from negligence from a from a product that's defective, from you know pollution, and you know if somebody dumps toxic waste into your stream and you into your water well and you drink it and you get sick, that's a tort. When um, you know a large when you go into a hospital and you know if God forbid something happens to you that's malpractice, that's a tort. When you've been harmed in some way that's been caused by someone else's negligence, that's, been, that's a tort. And tort reform is this, this term of art that was basically focus grouped by, you know, large corporate interests to, to come up with this term, you know, reform everybody thinks is a good thing now. But tort reform are all the different ways that we as Americans are being limited and restricted from getting into the court system to hold wrongdoers accountable when they harm us. 
And so it's not a good thing for us at all. It's really great for large corporations and for those who make products that harm us because then they get uh, um, an ability to limit their liability because oftentimes like one of the most prevalent ways of tort reform are what are called caps on damages or limits, an absolute limit on what people can get in a court system if they've been injured. It could, in, in California, when you go and try to bring a lawsuit for a medical injury, a neg- from negligence, from a medical injury, you are capped in California to $250,000 for pain and suffering. And that's the same cap, the same maximum amount that's been there since like the mid-1970s. Yeah. So what that means is that if you are seriously injured, but you don't necessarily have a lot of medical bills or you don't work outside the home. Let's say you're a, 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 a homeowner, I mean a mother who, um, who, who winds up having an injury to her reproductive system and you don't really have, you know, you can't have children anymore. You might not have a lot of medical bills, but if you never can have children, the absolute maximum that you're ever going to receive if you bring a lawsuit is $250,000. Well, what that means is that you're not going to find a lawyer who's going to be able to represent you because these cases cost that much to bring. And so it essentially limits people or sometimes restricts people completely from getting into the court system. And so tort reform, which people think is, oh, this great thing, is really, it's like, it's crazy because it's one of those uh, things that people are voting against their own self-interest. You know, they vote for candidates who say that they're for tort reform, or they vote sometimes for amendments, um, uh, constitutional amendments on their ballots for these things, and they're really taking away their own rights. It is amazing. It, it's taken a long time. It's not, this is not uh, something that uh, is a, a new issue. It's just 20, 30 years in the making. Stella's case came along uh, and provided uh, sort of the, uh, the, the accelerant, if you will, to this uh, to this legal bomb that's been thrown at us. Uh, and that's and so we have been hearing over and over this drumbeat, constant drumbeat, that uh, these exaggerated uh, um, stories of these settlements with people who have been wronged and who have sought justice. And, and so it's, it's, it keeps feeding on itself. And we have a lot of the usual suspects uh, in, uh, in this film in terms of pooling of resources of huge corporations, and there's a list of them, too long here to go into, who have been working diligently, and I want to kind of spread this issue out a little bit. They've been working not just at the federal level, but really more importantly at the state level. They've been working on state legislatures and judicial elections in a big way. So let's talk about it. Right, and so the biggest culprit is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. There you go. So most people think that the, you know, when you hear U.S. Chamber of Commerce, they think, oh, it's a governmental entity, you know, they, right. it's, you know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, they, they, they regulate commerce or something. Well, that's not right. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is the largest lobbying organization for corporations, definitely in this country and maybe even around the world. Yeah. And their mission is to limit liability. One of their missions is to limit liability in courts for their members. Right. And what they've done is they've put out these campaigns in every election cycle. And now, of course, with the Citizens United case, you know, having come down over two years ago where corporations are now, you know, essentially, you know, as they say, people. Um, I say they're never going to be people until, you know, they, they have a heart. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, but where corporations can give unlimited amounts of money in elections and not even say, you know, who's behind it. 
And so the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is behind, like, these, these ads that you see on television and many of these super PACs, and, and they, you know, they, they pool money together from their, me- from their membership. But the thing that's so crazy is that they do it in the guise of these organizations like Citizens for a Safer Community right. or Citizens for, you know, whatever, as if yeah. there are citizens in these groups. There are no citizens. These are, these are organizations that are literally manufactured from the top down from public relations firms. Money is, is pooled in, 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 in funding these things, and then they, put, they bombard our television waves with um, commercials, um, they bombard our radio waves. They do these robo calls, you know, every night. I, I, I you know, I get these phone calls, um, and, and they put out this message over and over and over again. And they have so much money. They have so much more money than any consumer group, than any individual candidate. And they put out this messaging that's completely manipulative, distorted. Um, and that's how they win. And they're now buying our judges. You know, everybody thinks about this in terms of candidates running for Congress or Senate. But they're also buying our court system right. because in most states, we are now electing judges. Well, let me, and when we, before we get, I've I got to tell our listeners that we're speaking with Susan Saladoff. We're talking about the documentary Hot Coffee. I, we got, people have to know. <laughs> we, uh, and uh, so, so, Susan, go ahead. We're, let's get into this because this is, I think, in my mind, uh, the most insidious part of what's going on in our judicial system uh, under the guise of our democratic system. Go ahead. Talk to us a little bit about... So when judges have to now run for office, and we're not just talking about our trial judges, we're talking about our Supreme Court judges the, the, in our states. Right. Not, you know, not at the federal level, obviously. Everybody knows the U.S. Supreme Court, which you know, has its own set of issues. But yeah. um, at our state level, we have our, our state Supreme Courts, which, which essentially make law at the state level for each of us. And those people have to run for office like have a, a, an election and what that means is that they have to raise money to be able to compete well when you have to raise money for an election you can become beholden to those who give you money and Carl Rove you know the this mastermind scary man that he is in my opinion um, you know he came up with this brilliant idea well in those states where we elect our judges which is now over 30 or 33 or something like that when these people have to run for office if we essentially can control their campaigns, if we can give money, we can buy judges. And so, just like the John Grisham book, The Appeal, which... Based on Oliver um, Diaz, apparently. Oliver, Oliver Diaz, who is, one of, uh, who is a state Supreme Court justice in Mississippi, who was targeted for defeat by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce because he wasn't pro-corporate enough. It's and when he... One anyway, yes. they wound up finding this the, these uh, this federal uh, attorney general through this was during the whole Alberto Gonzalez yeah, scandal, yeah, yeah. and they brought these false criminal charges against him to to tarnish his reputation and get him off the bench. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Every one of the stories in Hot Coffee is a remarkable story, not just for the facts on the ground, but for the alliteration it provides, the window into the world that we are now living in. It is, you've found some great people to to talk about their stories and what's happened to them uh, in in terms of illustrating your point. Um, All of them. Jamie, is Jamie Johnson, right? Jones. Jones, pardon me. Jamie Jones, her story, Oliver Diaz, uh, Colin 
um, Gourley. Gourley. All of these are just heart-wrenching, terrible, I mean, awful, awful stories in terms of the ramifications for their lives. Um, and but what you're right. The but the point that I the, I use the stories that are sort of you know somewhat of exaggerations of the issue, just so that people can understand, yeah. um, you know the, the 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 enormity of these things. But what I really was trying to do was show, you know, these people are not like you and me. I mean, they're not different from you and me. Yeah. I mean, God forbid any of these things should happen to us, but it could. You know, it, these things could happen to us, and when they do happen to us. Where can we hold wrongdoers accountable? Right. Where can you and I and your listeners hold wrongdoers accountable? The only place is in our court system. Right. And, if, and if we our court system is being taken away from us, then there's no accountability any longer. As you point out, there's very little redress in Congress unless you have a lot of money, and we don't. I don't. You don't. We don't have that opportunity. We don't have that opportunity in the executive branch. Where we do is in the courts. When we are... We're, are a jury of our peers are sitting in judgment of our case. It is the most level of all the playing fields that we have to operate in in this democracy. And you're right, it's being taken away. So we've covered the exaggeration in terms of the the lawsuits that have been uh, adjudicated, talked about uh, the, the caps, uh, arbit- arbitration is another, and the elections. And now arbitration is even, that is something that we've all done. Whether we know it or not, we've all signed contracts essentially voluntarily limiting our ability to get justice. Tell us a little bit about the arbitration clause. Right. So arbitration clauses, it's, it, it, if you now, every single contract, every single thing that you do these days, you're essentially being asked to sign a contract. You know, you think about it, everything you buy online, yeah. you now have to check off that little box that says, I agree to the terms and conditions. Right. You know, and you can't buy anything online unless you check off that box. Well, who reads that, the terms and conditions? And even if you were to read it, what are you going to do? Because you can't buy it unless you check off the box. You know, every time you go to get a car, buy a car or get a, a loan or um, sign up, uh, when you go to, the, to your gym and you have to, like, sign up for your gym, gym membership, you have to sign a contract. And now, in every single one of these contracts is something called mandatory arbitration or forced arbitration, or sometimes they call it dispute resolution. But when you read them, well, first of all, most people don't read them. And even if you did, you'd think, okay, well, what can I do about it? You know, I, can I cross it out? But people don't know what it means. Well, what it means is, is that before you ever know that you're ever going to have a dispute with this entity that you're now contracting with, that you're signing away your rights to ever be able to access the courts or ever be able to sue them, essentially, because you are agreeing to mandatory arbitration. Okay, you go, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what it means is that when you do have a dispute, you've now agreed that the company that you are now having the dispute with, they pick the decision maker, they pay for the decision maker, the decision maker doesn't have to give a reason why he or she gives the decision that, that, that they've come up with, it's completely secretive, and there's no right to appeal. Amazing. So who wins? We don't win. The company wins time and time again, like to the tune of like nine over ninety percent of the time, because the the decision makers or these arbitrators they work for these companies and they want repeat business, and so they're not going to rule for you and me because we only have this case one time probably. But the company like AT and T or General Electric or 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 one of these big companies, uh, they 
have cases time and time again, and they're the ones who pick the decision maker and pay for the decision maker, so the decision maker wants to give a ruling in their favor so they'll get picked again. Yeah. It's, we are, unfortunately, we've just run out of time, Susan, but... Uh, Yes, all the this can I is. Tell people where they can. Watch I was it, just least? this. You beat me to it. Yes, please tell us how to find out more. Okay, so the hot coffee is. Um, there's our website is hotcoffeethemovie.com, dot com, right. where there's a ton of information. Once you watch the movie and you get angry and you're going to want to do something, exactly. go to our website. There's a take action page. Yes. There's also a way you can get a DVD. It's still on HBO Go, which it was on HBO, and you can download it and stream it on HBO Go. You can get it on Netflix um, as um, by renting it, and now it's on iTunes, Amazon, PlayStation, and Xbox. Every civics class in this country should be screening this film. Uh, I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not, this is because... I hope everybody watches it before they vote in November, because that's really key. Yes, yes, because this, this is not going away. This is not a passe issue. This is a continuing, ongoing struggle for control, for some level playing field in our judicial system, the last resort for all of us. So please, please, please uh, watch the film, take action, get involved. Uh, Susan, I really thank you so much for being I've been wanting to get you for a long, long time on Film School. I'm so glad we were able to finally do this. Um, and uh, it's a great film called Hot Coffee. Go to hotcoffeethemovie.com. Check it out. Susan, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was wonderful. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.